Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's that haunting time of year again, when pumpkins glow and black cats screech, and you can be guaranteed we're ghost hunting on Louisiana Eats. We'll begin with the scariest supernatural experience yet at Tableau Restaurant on Jackson Square. Dickie Brennan invites us in to have a look at some videotape captured in his third floor dining room there. Suffice it to say, Dickie's ghosts know how to make the bottles fly better than any bartender I've ever met. Then our ghost hunt continues at the Napoleon House where Chef Chris Montero introduces us to their famous ghost, a woman garbed in 19th century attire who's wandered the upstairs gallery there for generations. And at Two Jacks, they have a cross-dressing ghost. Wait till you hear his story. We'll meet all the ghosts and ghouls on this week's special Halloween edition of Louisiana Eats. fall of 2017, a waiter was quietly clearing the third-floor dining room at Tableau after serving a large private party there. The room is known as the wine room, as the entire interior wall is lined with wine racks holding some very precious cargo. Here's Dickie to tell us the story. Bobby, what's, what's interesting is there's a camera in this room, and it caught it all, you know, so... This building is considered one of the most active in the French Quarter, in the city. And I've heard every story from everybody who's working with us over the last five years, every little incident, and, you know, I just rolled my eyes. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at this video. I mean, it was after we do great dinners in this wine room. It's up on the third floor, so we're like almost like in an attic. And we have wine stored in here, but we have a nice table, so we use it for dining uh, doing dinner parties and so young guy Chris was in here cleaning up they they had finished the dinner and it was just him in here and uh, on the top rack we have these wine bottles it might be six seven wines in that bin all of a sudden they're not falling out they're like being thrown out and it looks like if you had grabbed the neck of the bottle and just like were pushing it out, you know, and they were coming out and they were hitting the floor and half of them were breaking and a couple of them bounced pretty good. And then you see poor Chris, who <laughs> was sitting there sweeping, cleaning up the room, and he looks up and just sees all his stuff and he runs the hell out of here, which I guess anybody would do. But um, 
it's not wines falling out. It's wines that were being thrown out. I mean, I, like I'm saying, when I look at that vid, I'm like, oh, Lord. You know, what can I say? That was Dickie Brennan at his very haunted restaurant, Tableau. Dickie shared the incredible footage from his recent haunting with us. You'll find the link on our website, poppytooker.com, so you can see the flying wine bottles for yourself. Cheers! A dinner was served for three at Dracula's house by the sea. The orders were fine, but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me! My name is Chris Montero. I'm the general manager and executive chef of the Napoleon House. For over two centuries, the corner of Charters and St. Louis Streets in New Orleans' French Quarter has been home to the Napoleon House, a charming old-world nook where it's easy to travel back in time over a mufalada and a Pimm's Cup. In 2015, restaurateur Ralph Brennan acquired the property from the Impostato family, who had owned and operated it for generations. Ralph got more than he bargained for in that purchase. The Impostatas may be gone, but the ghosts stayed behind. Here's the Napoleon House chef, Chris Montero, to tell us all about it. Chris, are there any ghost stories here at the Napoleon House? As a matter of fact, there are a couple, right, that I feel confident in. And the first one is, was told to me by the Impostato family members, right? They were all born and raised in this building from childhood until their adulthood. And Maria Impostato, who's a real significant figure here at the restaurant, told me that everyone in the family has seen the little old lady who sweeps this balcony at night. And she said, there's supposedly ghosts everywhere, but I've seen the ghost on this balcony. So right where we're standing, is where allegedly the little old lady sweeps at night on the balcony. Do they have any idea who she is? Nope. No idea. She said she's wearing very old Civil War era clothing and that she sweeps the balcony and always walks up and down. So you kind of feel her presence, right? Yeah. She must be very frustrated these days. (laughs) (laughs) She's mad. Let's get out of here before it's too crazy. The woman sweeping the balcony. I've never seen her. Maybe she left with the impostata. It's possible. But who have you seen? Well, what happened was this. We cleared the cupola out about a year and a half ago, and we started bringing people up here very randomly. And we realized, well, the only thing we can really utilize for is just photography, and we did film scenes. So we started allowing some photographers up here with great parameters. You had to be sober. You had to be under 70, you know, things like that. And, and we started having fun with some wedding pictures and so on. We brought a little young lady up here for her graduation photograph. I don't know why, but that's what they wanted, right? So there's a, a photographer who's a good friend of ours, a woman and the mother and the little young lady. And we had to let them in through the padlock that I sent you up through. And there was no one else in the building on the third floor. And they proceeded to take a series of photographs right, right here in front of this window down low. And uh, a, a week or two goes by after they did this hour photo session. And she calls my sales manager. Now, this is a very reputable wedding local professional photographer. 
I've got something that is freaking me out, she tells Beth. She says, so she sends her the proofs from the photographs. And in this window, pane right here, is the most cryptic, creepy man's face that's sort of a profile looking towards this little girl. It looks a little Abraham Lincoln-ish, like an old beard, but not like one of your, you know, Virgin Mary on a slice of toast kind of obscure things. It's clearly a man's face, right? But a reflection in this window. So when Beth, my sales manager, saw it, she just completely flipped because she's the one that let him up here that day. And she said there were no men, there was no one anything remotely like that in this building. And to this day, she refuses to come into this attic by herself. She's scared to death. So I've only seen the photos and uh, it's gotten a little bit of traction on, on, on social media as the, as the ghost picture at Napoleon House. Yes. But that's our, that's our ghost story. Well, thanks for sharing that. And happy Halloween, Chris. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Chef Chris Montero from the Napoleon House. I've had plenty of my own personal experiences with ghosts. While researching the Tujek's cookbook, I found myself collecting endless terrifying tales from New Orleans' second oldest restaurant. Allow me to take you now on a walk through Tujek's, from the ground floor to its ghostly attic. The back dining room at Tujek's restaurant is known as the Begay Dining Room in honor of Madame Begay and her husband Hippolyte, who had the original restaurant at Tujac's back before the Civil War in the 1850s. There's been a ghost in this room, and his name is Julian L. Tinge. You can look online and discover that Julian L. Tinge was one of the most famous celebrities in America in the early 20th century. And the amazing thing about Julian was he never appeared on stage or on screen dressed as a man. He only appeared dressed as a woman. Whenever Julian came through New Orleans, he always made a stop for a delicious meal at the famous Madame Begay's restaurant. And the last time he was here in 1917, he left behind an autographed picture of himself which was hung on the wall and had been hanging there since 1917. In the summer of 2013, Mark Ladder, the owner of Tujac's, did a little facelift on the old girl and painted some rooms and redecorated a little bit. At that time, he took Julian's photograph off the wall and put it up in the attic. A few months later, a young couple, Ian Wren and April Russ were dining in the Begay room and took a selfie of themselves. When they got home and looked through the photographs from their trip, they discovered that in the Begay dining room, they had captured the ghostly image of Julian L. Tinge, suspended over a table in the corner where his photograph used to hang. Mark Ladder called me and he said, Poppy, I think we have a ghost. Who do you think it is? I took one look at the picture, and I told him, Mark, it's the cross-dresser. Where is his picture? Mark got the picture out of the attic. We put it back on the wall, 
And Julian seems to be at peace now because we haven't seen him again in this room since. This is a place that nobody who visits Tujac's usually gets to go. It's the site of Madame Begay's original kitchen on the second floor of the restaurant on the corner of Madison and Decatur. Here, she created the meal we know today as the brunch. Madame Begay died in 1906, but after her death, the restaurant continued as before. That's because she had a young kitchen assistant whose name was Francois Lafarge Laporte and later Begay. She knew the recipes and she ended up marrying Monsieur Begay. Late at night, here in the site of Madame Begay's original kitchen, the Tujac's employees hear the sound of something that sounds like terrible fighting going on. the first Madame Begay had an inkling that Monsieur Begay had a shine for her young kitchen assistant even before she passed away. We suspect the two madams are still battling it out in the kitchen on the second floor at Tujac's restaurant. While working on the Tujac's cookbook, I spent many, many hours up here in the attic at Tujac's restaurant. I was never afraid because I think that the Tujac spirits have been on my side helping me the whole time. During the process of researching the book, I had looked exhaustively for images of the former owners, but the castets and the Tujac's, they were missing. Six weeks before the manuscript was due, I came up to the Tujac's attic and found everything I was looking for. All of their pictures were up here, mysteriously waiting for me. And then the manager told me a true story about something that happened to a customer here. A gentleman had entertained and had a lovely dinner party where they had drunk a lot of expensive wines and had a wonderful, wonderful time. When dinner was over, the gentleman asked the manager, can we have a look around? And the manager said, sure, go help yourself. A week later, the man was back and he came to the manager and he said, mister, you've got to accept my apology. Remember you said we could have a look around? Well, we went up to the third floor, and when I got up to the attic, I stole a framed photograph. Victor told the man, don't worry, there's nothing of any value on that third floor. But the man said, please, please say you'll accept my apology, because from the time I left the restaurant with that photograph, I immediately lost my cell phone, my wallet, and my car keys. 
in the week hence, my best friend has had a stroke and he's in the hospital, and my wife was in a car wreck. So before I even came to ask for the apology, I put that picture back exactly where I found it. So please accept my apology. Well, I accept his apology, and I think the ghosts at Tujax do too. All I think happened was they wanted to make sure that I had all of their pictures and all of their stories straight for the Tujax cookbook. That's our tour of Tujax Restaurant. To learn more about its history and the cross-dressing ghost, pick up a copy of my book, Tujax Cookbook, Creole Recipes and Lore in the Grand New Orleans Tradition. Coming up next, our tour of haunted French Quarter restaurants continues as Louisiana Eats hunts for ghosts at Antoine's restaurant. Stay with us. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming Bananas Foster with modern Creole cooking by three-time James Beard finalist Slade Rushing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. For 175 years, Antoine's restaurant has seen characters of all kinds cross through its expansive halls. It's no surprise, then, that individuals who balance between this dimension and the next have made the restaurant home. Lisa Blunt, proprietress of Antoine's, gave us a personal tour of their spookiest sites, including a space that's affectionately known as the Mystery Room. Lisa remarked to us that visitors have often heard about Antoine's ghostly reputation before they even walk through the front door. It's funny, when we were celebrating our 175th anniversary, I was doing a lot of um, asking of questions and, and people coming around. And the number one question I get asked is about Hurricane Katrina. And the number two is ghosts. And so I went and walked around one afternoon when you know the waiters were around and some of the managers. And I said, has anybody ever seen ghosts? And there was lots and lots of sightings and, and things. So that's how it, it kind of came to be that we started kind of documenting some of the ghosts. Where shall we begin this tour? So we're going to begin right now. We're kind of more towards the back of the restaurant. We've come through the main dining room. All of these buildings are over 200 years old. 
we don't have the exact document on it, but we know they were called the triples, and it was in some maps and showed them as homes. And you can see, down here would have been an open courtyard, and then you would go upstairs to where the house was and where the living quarters were. So this is one of the places where um, a lot of people talk about seeing a woman. I have an office up there, and definitely when I'm alone, I feel this person. Um, and like I was talking about the mediums, we've had two mediums come through, both of them on separate occasions. We didn't ask them to come here, but they have both said, there's a woman here, and she's happy, and she's around. A lot of people see her. Um, it's interesting. She's either in dressed in a black dress, or she's been seen in, her wed- in a wedding dress, too. That's a very common sighting. Have you actually seen her, or do you just feel her presence? I saw her. I did see her. I was coming up upstairs once, and, and it was during the day, too. It was very faint, but it was definitely a woman in a, in a long dress, you know, maybe of the 1800s, you know, late 1700s. Um, I, I couldn't quite place that, and it was a quick little peek, and then she was gone. Upstairs is our accounting office, and when our uh, CEO, Charlie DeRocca, first started, he came in on a Sunday, kind of get his desk all ready before Monday and, and meeting everybody. So he came in and dead quiet, you know, the restaurant at that, those time was, was closed on Sundays. So he went in there, was straightened up his desk, and all of a sudden he heard the door lock. And he's like, wow, someone's, you know, playing with the door. So he came out and he's like, hello, and nothing happened. Sat down, happened again. And so then he kind of walked out and kind of was looking around like, did I not lock a door or someone's going around here? Um, And then he went down and sat down again. And then the shredder started going and drawers were pulled out. And he said he had one of those moments of, should I work here really? He he just decided to depart. And um, he did come to work the next day, but he definitely had an interesting moment, as he would say, in the building. Who are the mediums that have come through here? Did they come through on business or pleasure? No, one of them, one of them was really interesting. Both of them were dining here. Um, one of them I was with. And the woman looked at me and goes, I just, I just have this feeling. And we were, just, you know, we were just sitting there. And I'm like, she goes, can I, can I walk around? And I'm like, well, sure. And it was, it was kind of odd, but it was like, okay, whatever. And we had a couple glasses of wine, so, you know, let's walk around. And she immediately went around and walked upstairs and she goes there's a woman here and she's here and have you ever felt that and I go well we've kind of there's been stories and things and so she was so it was just totally on her on her own that she did it and then the other one was one night dining and kind of did the exact same thing with a waiter they were taking a tour of the restaurant and stopped and said wow this is there's a real powerful ghost here Ghost Stories from Antoine's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. About a three-hour drive northeast of New Orleans, in the heart of Cajun country, is the little town of Mamou, Louisiana perhaps most famous for its bar and dance hall, Fred's Lounge, the town attracts tourists from all over the world looking for a taste of authentic Acadian culture. (laughs) 
But Fred's isn't the only place drawing travelers to Mamou's sleepy little main street. Just down the road from Fred's, the historic Hotel Kazan has checked in more than its fair share of ghost hunters, all hoping to catch a glimpse of the apparitions who've never checked out. The hotel's owner, Valerie Cahill, invited the Louisiana Eats crew to spend the night in the century-old structure. But before we did, she gave us a tour of the premises, sharing stories of specters who'd be keeping us company there during our stay. I'm Valerie Cahill, and we are in front of the historic Hotel Kazan. And what I've found out is the history of it being haunted goes back decades and decades and decades. I started out very cynical because I had not ever seen a ghost, nor have I seen one. But what surprises me the most is people that come here from around the world, and you know they do, to come to Fred's and to see this area, they all see the same apparitions. The Paranormal Society that has the TV show, they came in from uh, Hammond, and they did two episodes here, but they set it up with the FLIR cameras, the forward-looking infrared cameras, and they caught quite a bit of footage. Well, so, can we go inside and do a little ghost hunting of our own? We gotta do it. Okay. We're gonna let the ghost do some Poppy Tucker hunting. <laughs> Poppy, right now you are in the historic Kazan's Bar, and this building has been completely renovated down to the studs, a major renovation before we came here. However, we kept the bullet hole, from an early robbery when it was a bar. Yes. And now if you want to come back here, this is HQ for some of our apparitions. Oh. And now for you. Oh, it's like the secret door. (laughs) When this has been set up with all the different accoutrements to see the paranormal activity that we have, this is one of the areas that really registers. But I will keep you safe. Do you have any idea who hangs out back there in a ghostly sense? They were not defined in a way that you could determine an identity. It's a shape you can usually get like a gender feeling from it. And they've captured all of this on film. But no, I couldn't give an identity because I wouldn't even recognize the people going back to the 1900s. Some of them, they feel like they know who the apparition is or who the spirit is because of the context. So the ghost that goes through the cafe wall, for an example. They know who she is because of who she was in life. Matil, which looks like Matilda written down, comes like straight about through here and goes outside. And so I used to ask why she was going outside and they say no, that this was actually a dining room out here going back in time. When they did a major renovation, everything stayed historic, and that was not a part of it. But by all accounts, she goes in and out as she did in life. And there is abundant capturing of that on, on the camera images of it. And who is Matiel? Matiel used to be a waitress here. And the way it was expressed to me, her happiest times were here when she was at work, maybe somewhat an unhappy marriage. And so when she was here, she was happy. And she was going back and forth and serving the people delicious food as she persists in doing now. So commonly people see her. And the people that see her will never see each other. I'm talking about mediums from Canada, a 10-year-old from Tennessee, a developmentally disabled woman that was a guest. It is a range of people that see it, and they all see the same things. Commonly see her, see the guy at the top of the stairs with his hair combed back. Certain things they all see, we never write it up publicly, we never put it on the website. 
in various people that will never meet each other, never speak in any way, see the same things. I have to ask you, has anybody ever stayed in a room and had an apparition sort of spook them? No questions about it, Poppy, because one morning I had a man come down and asked me if I had been in the room that he and his wife shared overnight. I said, no, sir, absolutely not, nor would I. Oh, it's okay. Did you come in in the middle of the night? I'm like, yeah, no, sir, I sure did not, would not, never thought about him. Oh, really? No, it would be okay. I said, no, no, I didn't. Okay. Boom, he goes. Wife comes down. Hey, Val, did you happen to come in our room in the middle of the night? I'm like, no, you were in your room with your husband. No, no. They said, but it's okay if you did. Did you happen to come in and turn off the radio? I was like, why? Because I'm fanatic about the power bills? No, I did not. <laughs> well, what happened? They said the radio had turned off, the lights had turned off, the nightlight had turned off, and then later on something else came on that wasn't. So definitely do, and we have people that hear a child's voice, like a small child's singing voice. So yes, we definitely have guests hear something, see like a vapor trail. It looks like when a plane goes through the sky like vapor trails of diaphanous gauziness and things that are moved. Like they feel like it's like little sight gags. Something will be left in a place. I've had people say that something was replaced, like a small trifling item with a coin or something that just wasn't there before. But it's always benign, it's always friendly, and it seems to make people comfortable. And what I have been told, being no expert, because the spirits are actually at rest here, they are not disturbed spirits. So these are benign spirits. Our guests are benign and content as well. So it's, it's really just a good fit. There's no, no scary element that seems disturbing. Well, all I can say is thank you for welcoming us into your haunted hotel. And I just can hardly wait for my sleepover with your haunts. Well, we want you to come back because you are our favorite apparition, Poppy Tooker. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie Cahill of the Haunted Hotel Kazan. For those of you wondering if anyone in the Louisiana Eats crew had a run-in with those benign apparitions during our stay, I'll reserve my comments. Let's just say that this group of skeptics thought twice before turning out the lights. In July 2018, Louisiana Eats went to Denver, Colorado for Slow Food Nations, a summit that brought together foodies from all over the world in the name of good, clean, and fair food. Over the long weekend, Slow Food presented the Taste Marketplace, a collection of food producers and organizations from across the world, Italy to New Orleans. Among the many booths were two exhibitors whose interest in pumpkins extended far beyond your annual jack-o'-lantern. My name is Patrick Smith and the business is The Farmer's Porch, Heirloom Pumpkin Seeds. My name is Laura Luciano and I'm the uh, Slow Food Governor for New York State. We begin with Patrick Smith of The Farmer's Porch, based out of Boulder, Colorado. When you were a kid carving pumpkins for Halloween, you may have set aside those seeds and roasted them up using melted butter and salt. By producing heirloom pumpkin seeds, Farmer's Porch presents a fresher approach. 
This is a little bit of a different experience than what people have usually had, because you can definitely roast the ones out of your pumpkin. The primary difference is those have the shell on the outside of the kernel, so they tend to be a little chewier and kind of tough to get to the kernel. With these, you get just the kernel, which is the really good crunchy edible part, and that's where all the flavor and nutrition and everything is. So these are all pumpkin seeds that are roasted with various uh, spice flavors on them. Um, I've got one that's a little bit sweet, the cinnamon cacao. Turmeric and lime is savory. The ghost pepper one is spicy. What's unique about this particular pumpkin seed, or this particular pumpkin rather, is it's grown specifically for the edible seeds. And the seeds grow without any shells on them. So you get just the kernel, which is the really good crunchy edible part. These are native to Austria, so you'll sometimes hear them referred to as Austrian pumpkins. Um, if you get very specific, the Austrians will call them Styrian pumpkins. That's the region in Austria that they originated. The Austrians will also sometimes call them oil squash because what they do with them is they press them into pumpkin seed oil and then they use this as an olive oil substitute. So when they would have olive oil shortages in Europe, the Austrians would make pumpkin seed oil and use that for bread dipping and salads and things like that when they didn't have enough olive oil. So that was the kind of evolution of this particular pumpkin. And then eventually some growers in Oregon picked up on it, so that's where all my seeds come from. So I work with growers that have been growing it in the Northwest for about the last, I don't know, eight to 10 years. So it's kind of a new crop to the U.S. Next, we move on to New York State's slow food governor, Laura Luciano. I'm a new governor to Silver New York State. This is my first year, and this is the first year that New York State is here at Slow Food Nations debuting the awesome products from our state. Among the products they had on display was a variety of pumpkin that was once on the verge of extinction, the Long Island Cheese Pumpkin. So the story about the Long Island Cheese Pumpkin is, is that's the original pie pumpkin. So. Back in the day, in the around early 19, you know, with the modernization of farming and industrialization, varieties that were squat in the pumpkin world weren't rolling off conveyor belts easy. So they replaced it with a non-tasty variety like a sugar pumpkin. So what happened was this beloved pumpkin started not showing up at farmers markets. Farmers weren't growing it. The seed wasn't readily available in seed catalogs anymore. So a gentleman named Ken Etlinger, who's from Long Island, realized, you know what? I'm gonna go out and find the pumpkins and I'm gonna start saving the seeds. Uh, I would say it's like the 1970s. He saved the seeds. A gentleman in Maryland, who was a farmer who grows for seed catalogs for retail, for commercial, got wind that Ken was saving this variety and wanted it. He sent the seeds to Maryland. And what happened was he began growing it and selling it, to, so then it began coming back into market in the retail sector. And during that time, then the pumpkin started coming back. But here's the problem. People are like, what's a cheese pumpkin? Isn't that a thing that sits on a porch during Halloween? So people weren't eating it. It was sitting on the porch. So we started what's called the Long Island Cheese Pumpkin Project. And what that project does is it brings ambassadors together to teach them, number one, about biodiversity, about seed saving, and why it's important to eat varieties to celebrate the heritage. Because if we're not eating them and celebrating them and growing and all those sorts of things, then it's gone forever. And it's the stories about families who are growing them. It's about the farmer. It's about the eaters. It's about your recipe. It's about my recipe. So we brought together chefs. We brought together educational institutions, school gardens, slow food, rallied around this variety to educate the public. 
about this. This is an example about biodiversity. So what's the state of the Long Island cheese pumpkin today? People are growing it. People are making products out of it. Here, look. Pickled pumpkins, you see, look. They're jarring it. They're, wait, not only jarring it, they're making jams out of it. People are making pies out of it. People are making pumpkin butter out of it. I make a dehydrated uh, cheese pumpkin fruit leather out of it. I mean, people are making products. And when you make a product, what happens is there's a demand for the pumpkins. And when there's a demand for the pumpkins, the farmers then are going to grow it. So that one little example is an example on why biodiversity is so important. Laura Luciano of Slow Food New York and Patrick Smith of The Farmer's Porch, a Colorado-based heirloom pumpkin seed producer. What was the most terrifying ingredient ever mentioned on Louisiana Eats? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? We've just posted the third episode of my travels in search of the winning Aura King salmon dish. Over the series of three podcasts, we travel to Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles, California. Just go to poppytooker.com and click on the Quick Bites podcast link to find these podcasts and more. And stay tuned for an upcoming episode of Louisiana Eats, where we'll reveal which chef wins the big prize in New Zealand. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What was the most terrifying ingredient ever mentioned on Louisiana Eats? Back in 2014, journalist Scott Gold did a segment on our Halloween episode about terrifying foods. Scott's thoughts ran the gamut from grape eyeballs to calves liver. That's C-A-L-V-E-S, liver, something many of you are probably familiar with eating over grits, a New Orleans breakfast favorite. We're not going to get into the controversy of the ethical nature of eating veal and its byproducts, but calves' liver comes from young calves. When Scott's segment aired, a devoted longtime listener sent an irate email. In it, he declared that he was a pet lover and had been totally horrified by Scott's discussion of what he'd heard as cat's liver. Yes, C-A-T. 
I wrote to our fan and explained that I was a pet lover, too, and would never condone a discussion about cat's livers as something to eat. Anyway, the entire Louisiana Eats team has always loved reflecting on that great Emily Latella moment. Never mind. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. After I died and the makeup had dried, I went back to my place. No moon that night, but a heavenly light shone on my face. Still I thought it was odd, there was no sign of God just to usher me in. Then a voice from above, sugar-coated with love, said, let us begin. You got to fill out a form first, and then you wait in the line. For over 35 years, Times-Picayune staff writer John Pope has marked the deaths of countless New Orleanians with his well-researched and poignant obituaries. John compiled an anthology of 123 of the most memorable obits into a single tome, entitled Getting Off at Elysian Fields. We sat down with John in our Louisiana Eats studio to discuss his work as the emissary of eternal rest. So allow me to wish you a very happy Halloween, John Pope, and welcome to Louisiana Eats. Back at you, Ms. Tucker. Tell us a little bit what it was like to be writing obituaries for that many years of your career. It was fascinating because, you see, I grew up here. So I got, grew up with this understanding of who fits where and how, and then I have a master's in history from the University of Texas, and that taught me the importance of context, how you can build a context around a subject. In the movie Citizen Kane, the word that everyone remembers is rosebud. And so when I started doing these obituaries that were in really profiles, I used that as my idea to try to find the key to character, just as the man in Citizen Kane was trying to find out what made Charles Foster Kane tick. I mean, people who know me and people whom I've called from, he said, Pope, I know you're looking for Rose, but I said, yeah, you're right about that. So, <laughs> but I will approach some neophytes and say, well, what's the rosebud here? What's that? It's the key to, the key to personality. It's sort of armchair psychoanalysis. I tell stories for a living. What better story than somebody's life, especially if it's a life that, in my terms, punches my quirky buttons. It makes me think, oh, who knew? Well, you did find some very interesting stories, John, and sometimes you found out some great surprises. Well, I'm a reporter. I ask questions. Brenda Hatfield, who was Mayor Nagin's chief administrative officer, a longtime friend, called me when her father died, and I expressed sympathy, and he had been a letter carrier for years and years and years, and he had a degree in chemistry, I think from Dillard, but because he was an African-American man in the 50s and 60s, being a letter carrier was about as good as he could hope for. It was civil service. So we talked about how he loved his patrons, remember birthdays, and on and on. I said, okay, Brenda, what else you got? She said, well, Pope, in World War II, he was a spy, and I said, cool. 
a spy. And we were off to the races. Yeah, he had been in the counter. He was one of the few African Americans in the counterintelligence corps, and he was assigned to pubs along the English Channel, probably where other black GIs went, to see if word of D-Day was leaking out. And he was also one of the first, if not the first, African-American members of a presidential security team for one of President Roosevelt's trips overseas. And the stories just kept coming. And the payoff came after the funeral. Brenda got back to me and said folks were coming up to her and her brother saying, you never told us this. She said, you never asked. Oh, but you ask all the right questions. And often you're asking those questions in advance. A lot of the time. I think a lot of people don't know that there are many obituaries sitting in a file of folks who are still walking about and breathing and living. Yeah, there's, it can be strange. I met Edith Stern, the great philanthropist, three weeks after I had written her obituary. And then my wife and I walked into a Christmas party in the Garden District, and there were Sonny Norman, the great arts patron, Judge John Minor Wisdom, the hallowed federal judge, and Lucille Bloom, the great music philanthropist, laughing it up and having a wonderful time. I had written all three of their obituaries. (laughs) I almost had palpitations. I don't think anyone noticed except Diana. Does anybody know that their obituaries are on file? Oh, yes. A a few. Um, Betty Carter, a wonderful woman, just deserved an obituary because her life was extraordinary. She was the widow of Hodding Carter, the publisher of the Delta Democrat Times. She grew up, her mother was Elizabeth Werlein. There was a constitution of Mexico that was drafted in her living room when young Betty was growing up. Um, I thought Betty deserved an advance obituary. And one night I had a question of her son, Philip. So I called Philip's house and Betty answered the phone. And she said, I'll never forget this. I know what you're doing. You'd better do a good job or I'm going to come back from the grave and pounce on you. (laughs) Well, that's very interesting that you mentioned that phone call because every time you call me and leave a message or, or even just begin the conversation, it always begins the same way. Hi, Poppy. It's John Pope and nobody's died. That just must be the funniest thing in the world to have to do. Because I, I'm, you're sort of like um, the angel of death when you call sometimes. That would be me. No, um, in fact, once I called a very dear friend whom I've called for a bunch of obituaries. And I just, after, before I stated what I was doing, there was this pause at the end of the, end of the line. I said, oh, nobody died. <laughs> but my favorite story in that vein, well, there have been two. One local, one away. The away story involved Betty Davis. A reporter from the New York Times was sent to her house to interview her for her obituary, and he used the ploy that I have used to get into people's houses. I said, hi, we're doing a profile. Mm -hmm. So in he went, and he and Davis chatted away. After about an hour, she looked at him and said, are you interviewing me for my obituary? He said, well, yes. She said, wait a minute. Off she went. In a few minutes, she came back with a pitcher of martinis and two glasses and said, let's talk. Oh, my goodness. Well, then there was Dr. Homer Dupuis here, and I talked my way into his house. We were chatting away for about an hour, and he looked at me and said, when's this going to run? 
And I said, oh, I don't know. And off we went. You really aren't the angel of death. You just play the role sometimes. Well, John, thank you so much for telling us these always entertaining obituary tales. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. John Pope, author of Getting Off at Elysian Fields. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcasts and also order a personalized copy of my new book, the just-released Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from the Bourbon House, from oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 